Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by Dr. John Russin. Now, before we get into this week's show, I wanted to give you guys a little weekly recap, give you some insights as to what went on this past week, and let's just start with what an awesome weekend I am coming off of. And awesome day, Saturday, had some sportsing with the kiddos, Kendall had softball, Kate had baseball, got to hang out with them the rest of the day, and then got to take my amazing, beautiful, and awesome wife on a date Saturday night, which is if you are married, have a significant other, you know how just important date nights are. So that was awesome. The only downside to that was the fact that we tried to get home late, 9.30, 9.45, because the best part about date night is not having to tuck the kids in. And unfortunately, they decided they were going to hijack that plan and stayed up waiting for us. So other than them still being awake when we got home just because they were excited to see us, it was awesome. And we had a really good time. Sunday, it was kind of rainy days around here. So just kind of laid low, got an awesome workout in, did a whole bunch of puzzles with the kids. They're super into puzzles right now. They go through these phases. But we knocked out a bunch of puzzles, and then I took them, and we all saw Secret Life of Pets 2. So that was the weekend. This week, tons of content. If you haven't checked it out, I'll make sure I put links in the show notes, but some really good content that I think you'll enjoy. First off, a new article that I wrote for bodybuilding.com called The Role of Active Recovery. And the basic premise here is simple. You know, Back in the day when I was training, I would just slay myself in the gym, and then I had the mindset that hey, I just crushed it. Like I'm going to take a day or two days off and not do anything. And as my model of training has evolved, as we've learned more about the training process, we've come to realize that just sitting around for a day or two probably isn't ideal. So this article dives into the role of being active in our recovery and gives you some really concrete strategies that you can take and use, whether it's in your own training or that of your clients and athletes. So if you haven't read that, definitely check it out. Second new video up, a challenging variation on the front squat. As you guys know, I love front squat variations. And if you have never done an offset kettlebell front squat, it is one of my favorites, especially if somebody tends to load their body asymmetrically. So if you have not checked that video out, make sure you do it. The podcast is crushing here in the last six to eight weeks. So before I go any further, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. I truly appreciate it. And JL's show, which just launched last week, is absolutely through the roof. I think I got 2,000 downloads in like two days. So I would love to say that that's all me, but that is not all me, bro. That is all JL. So appreciate him coming on. And man, you can just tell from our chat, he's one of those guys, very well spoken. A lot of times I think if you look at him and make a snap judgment based on his exterior, you'd think, oh, this is just some dumb meathead. But I learned very quickly talking to JL. He's very thoughtful. He's very well-spoken and just a great guy to catch up with. So if you missed that show, go back and check it out. What else? The trenches are heating back up. It's a good problem to have. We've been a little bit slow, but mostly because a lot of the guys that we're trying to grow and develop and, and build up to get to the next level are getting NBA opportunities. They're you know, in Oklahoma City or they're in Utah or they're in Minnesota. So Really cool to see these guys traveling and getting these opportunities and excited to see where that gets them. And then last but not least, major work on this project. I know I said this the last couple of weeks, but 
I'm really getting dialed in here to the point where when I'm driving to the barn, it's about a 45 minute drive. I'm rehearsing there. I'm rehearsing on my way back to the gym, working on the PowerPoint whenever I can find an extra 20, 30 minutes. So all in all, super jazzed about where it's going, a little overwhelmed because the video shoot date is rapidly approaching. But this all kind of blends seamlessly into my deep thought for the week. And the value or the thought is very simple. And I think there's massive value in the idea of forced deadlines or putting constraints on your work. And I forget who it is. It's not Murphy's law, but you know, one of these laws that basically says, you know, the longer you give yourself to get a job done, you'll take about that long to get it done. Versus if you try and compress that time frame, you tend to really dial yourself in, you get really hyper-focused, and you still get things done, albeit in a much shorter time frame. So I want to give you a practical example, because if you're listening to this show, you either went to high school or college or both. Imagine this scenario. A teacher says, you're not going to have any homework in my class. You're not going to have any quizzes in my class. You are going to have two tests, and those are going to make up 100% of your grade. Now, let's be really honest here. How often are you going to study for that class? Not very often, right? You're going to study for about two weeks out of the year, the week before the midterm, and the week before the final. So why is that? Well, because you have a hard deadline. You know on this day you're getting this test, and you better be prepared. Well, let's kind of bring this full circle. I'm talking about this certification. If I had just said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of like set up the, the video shoot date whenever it's done, like it would never get done. So what I did in March, I reached out to my boy, Paul Rutan, who does all my video work for, you know, the YouTube videos to the big projects now. And I just told Paul, what do you have open in June? Now, granted, this was still like a three month time frame, but I had also outlined this in my brain and I knew how big of a project this was. So he said, end of June, I said, perfect. I put it on the calendar. Now I have a forced deadline, right? Nobody's saying, holding a gun to my head and saying, I have to shoot that video that day. I could do it in July or August or September, but I forced that deadline. I put a constraint on myself so that I would get it done sooner. All right. Now this isn't just about me. Let's spin this around and let's put this in your world. All right. How can you take this and apply it to your own training? or maybe that of your clients and athletes. Now, one of the best times to put a deadline on yourself is with a vacation, okay? So, and, and this could be you, or it could be a client that you work with, especially a fat loss client, because nothing will motivate you more than being in a swimsuit, <laughs> right? Like nobody wants to be the person at the pool or at the beach that's 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight. They all wanna look good when they're in a bathing suit. All right, so that's one way, you know, book a vacation. And then, okay, now you're going somewhere, you're gonna be, whatever, in a bikini, in a swimsuit, let's dial your training and your nutrition in. That'll get some motivation going real quick. Another thing that we used to do, and I talked about this a little bit in my interview with Craig Rasmussen, but once somebody's hit their body comp or maybe their aesthetic goals that they're looking to chase, what do you do next? It doesn't make sense. They're not just going to fall off the wagon and stop training, right? That would be silly. So we try and find a more performance-based goal. And so this is why with a lot of our clients, especially earlier on in the iFast history books, 
we would push them into the sport of powerlifting. And I wouldn't say push, but we gently nudge them into the sport of powerlifting. Because now we've got this very tangible deadline, right? We know on September 30th or November 1st, you're doing a meet. But we also have some objective goals that we can set, right? We know very clearly on that date if we squatted 300 pounds or if we bench pressed 200 pounds. So these are ways that you can put forced deadlines and constraints on yourself, your clients, or your athletes to help make sure that they're getting the best possible chance for success. Now, one thing I would like to, to add on to this, and this is something that I've heard numerous places, I am very admittedly bad at it myself, but I think it's really important that if you're going to set some sort of really audacious goal, or you're going to set this really hard timeline on yourself, that on the back end of that, you find some way to reward yourself. So I can tell you, for example, when I get this video shoot done, I've got about a two-week window, and then the family and I are going to Michigan for vacation. So I couldn't do it that exact next week. That would have been awesome. But hey, look, you know, two weeks later, we're going on vacation, and I'm going to totally chill out and decompress for a week. So don't just do all the hard work and then not give yourself some sort of reward. Now, what works for you, I don't know, doesn't really matter, but it's gotta be something that's that's special or something that gets you excited. So start to think in this way, what are some strategies or what are some potential areas where you can put force deadlines or put constraints on yourself so that you can get more done, so you can accomplish those goals a little bit faster and so that ultimately you can be more successful both in and out of the gym. So my friend, hope that makes sense. Hope you enjoyed that. We're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna come in and talk to the Dr. John Russell. Years ago, I used to get asked the same question time and time again. If I can only purchase one of your products, Mike, that will make me a better trainer or coach, what would it be? And here's the part that really sucked. I flat out didn't have a great answer for them. Magnificent Mobility, Inside Out, Bulletproof Knees, they were all really solid products, but none of them were a perfect fit for the trainer or coach who wanted a thorough introduction to my methods. That's why I created Physical Preparation 101, to give that trainer or coach a product that would cover all of my basic training philosophy. This product is broken down into two specific themes, one focusing on program design and the second focusing on coaching. So whether you want to write consistently better training programs or find the exact exercise or cue to get your clients and athletes moving better, it's all covered in this product. If you're interested in learning more, simply go to physicalpreparation101.com to learn more. Again, that's physicalpreparation101.com. Dr. John Russin is one of the fitness and sports performance industry's leading experts in the pain-free performance training model that blends the world of strength and conditioning with clinical movement-based diagnostic treatment. Dr. Russin's present and past client list includes Major League Baseball All-Stars, NFL All-Pros, Olympic gold, bronze, and silver medalists, world record holding powerlifters, elite bodybuilders, and figure competitors, all world Ironman triathletes, and top professional athletes from eight of the major American professional sports leagues. John is also the founder of the Pain-Free Performance Specialist Certification, which has certified over 2,000 coaches in the last three years on four different continents. In this show, John and I talk about how an elbow injury ended his baseball career, but started his career as a coach, the most common injuries he sees and deals with, why a push-up is one of the single best exercises you can be doing, 
a staggering statistic on conventional deadlifts, and his thoughts on developing and expressing authentic movement patterns. John is a super impressive guy, not only in his thought process, but with regards to his workload. And I think you're really going to enjoy our chat. But enough for me. Let's do this. John, man, first off, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat with you. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Well, I got started as a strength and conditioning coach 12 years ago in the high school sector, and I moved up the ranks little by little, moved into collegiate strength and conditioning, eventually into professional and Olympic strength and conditioning. And somewhere along the way, I got a doctorate in physical therapy. So right now we run a hybrid model of high performance training with a preventative based mindset. So right now with our client management, around 40,000 people are using our programs currently. And we also are doing a lot in the education realm with the pain-free performance training system. But it all started back in Buffalo, New York, University of Buffalo, which is my undergrad alma mater. And that's where I think I learned how to coach people originally. Yeah. So first off, I just want to, that made me smile a little bit because we've had like four or five interns from University of Buffalo that have come through <laughs> IFAST. So that's funny. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. So I'm born and raised in Buffalo, New York. I went to the University of Buffalo and then I did my graduate work at Damon College, which is about five minutes away from my hometown. So I spent my first 23 and a half years in Buffalo, New York. Buddy Morris likes to say it's the most depressing place on the planet, too. <laughs> so Buddy was one of the first influences I ever had because when I was 16 years old, my dad walked me into the University of Buffalo weight room and he said, this is a world-class coach. You watch him coach. And I stood in the back corner of that weight room for six months watching Buddy coach his Olympic and his football team. And I couldn't believe what was going on. About six months later, I got a dowel. I started movement. And about a year later, I started in strength and conditioning in that same facility. So it was an unbelievable opportunity right away. Wow, man. The stars really align there. That's a pretty awesome guy to learn from. <laughs> I didn't know at the time, though, because, yeah. you know, it was just a, another bald white meathead, you know, right. out of our industry today. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I picked up things very, very quickly. And obviously, people were getting results. But it was a lot different from what the other coaches were doing that I've seen before and what the other coaches were doing even at the same university. So it was intriguing how big, fast, and strong they were getting and how resilient the athletes were as well because nobody was really getting nicked up in the, in the day and age where this is 15, 20 years ago where getting hurt in the weight room was just the norm. Yeah, that's interesting. So l let's unpack this a little bit. What, what got you started? Obviously, your dad dropping you off – Buddy Morris's gym didn't hurt, but like, what got you interested in working out and lifting weights and all that? So I was an athlete growing up. I played three sports in high school. I played baseball, basketball, and football. And then going to college, I actually played baseball predominantly. And I dabbled in Division One football as well for about a semester. But baseball was definitely my passion. But learning how to train for my sport originally was really what drew me into the weight room. And about two to three years into college, I realized, man, I can't stay healthy worth a damn. <laughs> I really love the weight room. My hamstrings, my back are all messed up. I have two torn UCLs on bilateral elbows. And maybe I like training a little bit more than my sport because I can't tend to stay healthy enough to compete at the highest level. <laughs> so that was always my Achilles heel. 
was that I was never the available athlete. I was always the one that had high potential on the bench right. that could never stay healthy long enough to actually help my team or even help my career moving forward in the professional ranks. So, okay, you're obviously, you've got talent, you want to play, you can't get out there, but now you start getting in the gym. What takes that from, I enjoy working out and lifting weights to, I want to make a career out of this? Yeah, that's a great question because this was definitely my spark. So I was in my sophomore year of college, and it was the 16th game of the season. I remember this like it was yesterday. It was a poor field, northern field at University of Rhode Island. I was a center fielder. I went diving for a ball in center field, just a blooper going in in front of me, get my arm caught underneath my body. And this was my left arm, so my glove hand side at the time. And I tear my UCL for the second time. So Mm. previous history, I had my senior year of high school, my throwing arm torn UCL. And that really kept me out of the 2005 and 6 draft. That kept me away from being able to actually go pro right away. And it pushed me into college where I had a good background. I had a full scholarship and all that stuff. But at this point in time, 16 games into a sophomore year of college, finally healthy for the first time. It was obliteration for my confidence. So I literally went home. I didn't play the rest of the season. I sat around and I said, what do I need to get back? And I went back into that same weight room over at University of Buffalo working with a different strength conditioning coach at the time, Ed Fitzsimmons. And I was able to rehabilitate not only my previous injury on my right side, but my new UCL injury on my left side and get stronger than ever before. Even with something that doctors told me that, oh, you need surgery, man. Oh, you need to go to physical therapy six days a week. (laughs) We did all rehabilitation within a more hybrid model in the weight room, not in a clinic. So that opened my eyes to the possibilities of not only being able to keep our athletes healthy, but really bridge between getting somebody out of surgery or getting somebody off of an injury and actually getting them back not to 80%, not to 90%, but to 100 plus percent to get them better than they were before by cleaning up some of these weak links just the way that I did in the weight room. Dude, that's so cool to hear. And that's something that we talk about all the time at our gym, like something we've gotten a ton of. And part of it is our reputation as a gym. Part of it is Bill's reputation as a physical therapist. But we've gotten so many kids in the last couple, probably let's say six months to a year, where they're out of the black and white zone of physical therapy, and they're right. in this gray zone of, well, they, yeah, they they can return to sport, but they've done no return to sport training. And so that's something that, that we've gotten a lot of here lately. It's like, okay, we've got to connect the dots here because at least the what we're seeing here in Indianapolis, there's a lot of kids that are being left in this gray zone They're not ready to transition to sport. They're done with physical therapy and they really need somebody to help guide them through those last couple steps to, like you said, get them past that 70, 80, 90% and get them to 100% and beyond. Well, I think one of the big secrets today in the fitness industry and the sports performance industry is that people aren't bulletproof. They aren't 100% healthy all the time. Honestly, I've never seen somebody be a pain-free mover and 100% functional mover in my entire career. So everyone has these little nicks, aches, and pains. People have past histories of injuries or hardships or dysfunctions that we wanna work on. I think it does our clients a disservice to throw them right into having performance be the number one 
and injury risk mitigation being number two. You know, the more that I do this, the more athletes that I coach, I really put my number one as keeping those athletes as bulletproof as we possibly can. One in the gym, two on the field, and then three in their daily lives. So we can actually get enough consistency in hard work in the weight room to actually get out there and perform. Well, you're absolutely right. Like that's what I always come back to is, look, if you can keep somebody healthy enough and in the gym and training at a high level, their performance will improve. Unless you're a total idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like keep them in the gym, keep them training. Because what's what's the number one reason people start to backtrack? It's because they're injured all the time. They can't be consistent in their training. So I love that. I love that mantra. It was uh, one of my earliest influences in the private sector. I actually worked for Coach Todd Durkin. Todd's known yeah. as the rah-rah guy on Perform Better Circuit. But one of my first weeks out there in San Diego working at Fitness Quest 10, this is like 10 years ago now, we had all the NFL offseason training clients come in. And Todd goes, hey, Johnny, Johnny, what is the key to this offseason to be successful for these athletes? I'm like, I don't know, like increase their vert, make them faster, maybe lose some body fat. He goes, no, 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 it's not about that whatsoever. Number one rule, make sure that they don't get hurt. Number two rule, make sure that those guys don't get fat. And number three rule, this is the ultimate, make sure they don't get arrested. And I was like, man, I can do this strength and conditioning thing. I can do it at a high level. If those are the three rules, I got this covered. But looking back on it a decade later, man, was that some good advice. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. So I ask this question a lot, but I'm going to put a little bit of a twist on it this time. So we've already discussed this a little bit, but I'd love to hear your overarching philosophy as I think you're this really unique blend of trainer and physical therapist, coach, but most importantly, how did your philosophy come about? Like what shaped or molded that? Was that just the injuries that you had? Was it those experiences like talking with Todd? How did that all come together for you? I think that we are all products of our experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about career capital, everyone has career capital. You know, some is worth more than others, but we are the sum of all of our experiences. So I'm very, very fortunate to have great experiences from 16 years old on until today. And I truly just think that my philosophy is a fine-tuned system that blends many of the systems that I saw being executed at a world-class level. You know, whether it was, you know, Westside for athletes coming out of University of Buffalo, whether it was the API model, whether it was the FMS model, whether it was this hybrid ART slash performance model that I worked in, or even what we're doing today with the barbell sport athletes and more strength sport athletes of mixing, you know, the different methodologies along pure strength and conditioning with what I know to be true with uh, preventative based care on the side of physio and rehabilitation. So it's a very intriguing thing to try to dive into two different niches at once. And essentially, that's what I've done over the last 12 years, not because I chose it, just because that was my past experiences. You know, having worked 100% of my career as a strength and conditioning coach, but having done that, having the background and the education in an allied healthcare profession, but a different profession, which is rehabilitation and physical therapy, I think that we, we look at the reverse engineering model a little bit differently for our athletes and our clients that make it a little bit more advantageous to put health prevention and injury risk mitigation at the number one forefront, even above performance metrics. I like it. I like it. So since I have you on here, I would love to talk about common injuries that we see in the gym because, you know, some physical therapists 
I'm not saying who, but we all know <laughs> that, you know, if you hurt your knee, they would say, well, don't do squats anymore or, you know, deadlifts are going to hurt your back. So I'd love to dive into like some common injuries that we see in the gym and then your thoughts on those. Does that work for you? Yeah, definitely. Uh, this was actually a, a topic of a T Nation article about five years ago. And I actually went in with my research and statistics guy and we actually quantified this. Not nothing that would be peer reviewed in the in the journals, but we actually have some solid numbers on this. So number one pain point among the active population right now, shoulder, not lower back. Really? Shoulder. Okay. Lower back is going to be number two. Number three is going to be a clear cut knee. From okay. there, four and five is going to be split between the neck and the elbows. So it's very, very intriguing that number one and number two, shoulder and lower back pain, are more the emerging pain points that we see among active population. So when we're talking about active population, it doesn't mean that you have to be a professional athlete or a power lifter or actually lift weights. It means that you have some sort of physical practice that is habituated and routine, whether it's walking, whether it's yoga, Pilates anything that is physically active on a routine. But it blows my mind to know that, you know, with all of the research that we have, with all of the advancements that we have in our industry, lower back pain is getting worse and worse. And then creeping up really innocently is shoulder pain in this population. And those two things are really the, the two tenets that we try to center our preventative-based training around, trying to bulletproof against shoulder and lower back pain. Hmm. Well, I never would have guessed that the shoulder would outpace the back. I never thought we would see that day. That's crazy. We're going to be able to see actual evidence published in the next five to seven years. But, you know, with the emerging anecdotal study of a number of coaches, a number of researchers, we're seeing a lot of different trends hit the fitness industry that are leaving the shoulder more predisposed to chronic pain, acute injuries than ever before. And again, this thing blows my mind as well. Hmm. So, okay, well, I'm going to go out of order then because I had a certain order that I was going to take these in, but let's start with the shoulder because, look, every bro that listens to this show wants to be able to bench press. Like, you know, there's very few people that can, with all honesty, say they they never want to bench press again, right? Like sometimes you're forced into that or you have to make adjustments, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Like if somebody can't bench press safely and effectively, what are your initial thoughts? What maybe alternative exercise are you going to and how are you going to get them back to benching? I mean, it goes back to the old powerlifting dogma that has left us in this predisposition in our industry today, mm -hmm. that the bench press is the king of all upper body lifts. I would beg to differ from a fundamental movement, from a foundational movement standpoint, bench press is not the key lift. It is going to be a push-up mm -hmm. and not being able to do 100 or 200 push-ups straight like you're in the army, but rather load the foundational movement pattern which we know is a fundamental tenet of actually getting better, getting resilient strength development. So when we have people that come in, I mean, a lot of our clients come in with a lot of shoulder pain when they're bench pressing, a lot in competition, guys benching four, five, 600 pounds in competition. Many times it's a simple question. Hey man, how much closed chain pushing are you doing? Are you even training the pushup, let alone are you challenging the pushup? Yep. And many times that answer is a no, and it's one of those red flag issues for us. If you're skipping a foundational movement pattern, the easy implementation back in is going to be the long-term play. But the short-term play is definitely getting them out of those exacerbating positions, altering what they're doing on the bench, or 
trying to find where those weak links are that are predisposing that chronic front-sided shoulder pain. That's actually a new generalized term that we have in our industry today, because many times that little pinch on the front side of the shoulder, that little nagging pain on the front side of the shoulder, isn't caused by the front side of the shoulder. It's elsewhere. And most times that's on the back side of the body. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting to hear. And it's so funny because I don't train power lifters nearly as much as I used to. I obviously used to do some consulting. I know you've consulted for like Dave Tate and the guys over mm-hmm. at Elite. But man, like my bigger like offensive linemen, defensive linemen, some of those guys, man, they love to lay down on a bench and throw some weight around. But you ask them to own their own body weight in a push-up and they are hating life. It is. It's a very, very humbling thing. And I think that the lack of external load used on a push-up is what keeps people away from driving this fundamental pattern forward because there's nothing sexy about throwing 80 pounds on your back and being able to do a push-up for sets of eight. But there's something sexy about being able to put three or four plates on the bar, bench it off your chest with your ass flying up and going, hey, man, you see that rep? You know, it's just uh, the dogma that sits back in our industry. But when we talk about being like a, a functional skill, being able to have the hands, the feet on the ground, having to own your core plus your shoulders and hips integrating together as a unit, that's going to be advantageous, not only for performance, but for long-term shoulder health. I love it, man. Couldn't agree more. So now let's talk about the lower back. And we've all heard, again, the dogma of deadlifts will ruin your back or deadlifts are bad for your back. (laughs) So number one, as a physical therapist, you know, how do you respond to that? Because you've got kind of both sides of that that lens in you. And then if somebody does struggle with the deadlift or they struggle loading their spine, you know, what are your initial thoughts there? Well, I think the number one thing that people get predisposed lower back pain to is force feeding specific barbell deadlifts off the ground out of a mismatched stance. So you're not less of a man if you can't get into a conventional stance and rip a bar off the ground from 8.75 inches, which is the diameter of an Olympic plate. You know, you're not right. less of a man because of that. What we need to be doing is actually matching our setups for hip hinging, the bottoms up or the top down approach to what we have at our disposal, whether that be a mechanical model of anthropometrics at the hip and at the spine and at the pelvis, or whether it just is a neurological model that we don't have the skill to get into the prime positions yet. So instead of force feeding these different barbell deadlift variations, we try to, again, use that reverse engineering model and build the most fundamental pattern back up, which is the top-down hinge, a.k.a. the RDL, Mm -hmm. in different foot stances that are going to be specific to their hip type, in different loading parameters where different loads are over center of mass, and then eventually being able to go in and actually pull something off the ground again using variants and not just acting like there's only one exercise underneath this monstrous umbrella, which is the hip hinge pattern. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I always have to battle too, because I obviously work with a lot of tall athletes when we're talking about the basketball population. And, you know, absolutely. I'm not going to have them do a conventional deadlift from the floor. In fact, a lot of times I'm going to do a high handle deadlift, like a trap bar deadlift off a box. But here's the thing, like even, even in the realm of athletes, it's always individual to the athlete. I mean, I've had five, five soccer players who I've had to trap bar deadlift high handles off a box just because their hinge was so poor, at least yes. early on. So again, I can't stress that enough. You, you have to be contextual to the athlete standing in front of you and not generalize these things. 
And one of the craziest statistics that I heard, this is coming out of McGill Method. We actually had Joel Proskowitz, the master lead instructor of the McGill Method at our PPSC course at Exos this year. And Joel, I brought him up in front of the room because we were talking about lower back pain. I'm like, Joel, tell me the statistic that you just said to me in break. And he let down this crazy statistic that I will never forget. And I don't think anyone in the room will ever forget. You know, through Professor McGill's research, he's actually quantified that 92% of human beings are incapable of getting into an authentic hip hinge pattern and pulling a barbell off the ground in a conventional stance. 92% of people. So eight out of every 100 people, awesome, go for it. 92% of those people need to be able to make intelligent customizations to the hip hinge pattern that don't exacerbate lower back pain or just don't put us into inadvantageous positions to stay healthy or perform our best long term. You know, unfortunately, we all can't be Eric Cressy and just <laughs> tug 650 pounds off the floor on a weekly basis. With somebody else's belt on. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I always tell people this is like the Wayback Machine, but I think it was 2006 we did the Building the Efficient Athlete seminar. And mm. so we lecture all day on Saturday, all day. And at the end of the day, I'm like, man, I'm starving. Like, let's go eat. And Eric's like, I, I got to lift today. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, no, I got to lift. And that dude worked up to a 600-pound deadlift, no belt, after a day of being on his feet and lecturing. That's when I realized Eric Cressy was not a human. So, <laughs> savage, savage. Okay, so we've talked shoulders. We've talked backs. Let's talk about knees. And you and I both know it may be number three on the list, but Man, a lot of clients, a lot of athletes struggle with knee pain when they squat, when they lunge. So when you're yeah. seeing somebody that's dealing with knee pain, again, kind of what's your thought process and where are you going to go with it? Well, we're always looking at the, the knee joint as being just a simple hinge joint, right? So when we think about just the biomechanical model of what needs to go on, the ankles and the hips are always a thing that I want to make sure are working correctly before we go after icing the knee, putting stim on the knee, doing yes. any of that shit. So looking at that, we try to definitely look at ankle mobility, hip mobility, and dynamic hip stability and the ability to actually dominate different varied positions through loading of the single leg pattern and the squat pattern. But from there, there's some simple modifications that people just forget about. You know, not everyone has to free squat. I'm a big believer in the box squat for having a more posterior driven squat pattern that keeps the shins a little bit more vertical, that places the targeted muscular recruitment into the hamstrings and the glutes a little bit more and takes a little bit more away from the quadriceps because not only can it be good for mitigating risk of chronic knee pain, but it can also push more posterior chain dominant patterns into our overall programming because this day and age, I don't think many people need to be working on more anterior chain recruitment. We got that with cell phones. We got that with driving. We definitely got that with laptops. But when we talk about the lunge, you know, that's the one too. It's like people think that they have to put a bar on their back, walking lunge across a football field just to get a training effect. Right. You know, the lunge pattern is essentially asymmetrical stance at the lower body. It's single leg pattern. There's different levels to this pattern. And we forget that, hey, we can get both of our feet in asymmetrical stance. We can do things like split squats. We can go in and actually do things like reverse lunges. We can go the opposite direction, and we can maintain better positions at the torso combined with that forward shin angle that can reduce the amount of stress that goes through the front side of the knee there. 
So it's people are, oh man, bilateral squatting is bad for your knees. Lunging is bad for your knees. It always comes down to execution and customization of the pattern for the individual in front of you. Man, I don't think I could have said it much better than that. That's <laughs> very nicely said. So here's one I'm really, really interested to hear, especially with your background and the way you think. Are there any exercises out there that you just flat out hate? There aren't. We try to program everything, but the way in which you program it matters very, very much. So let's take Olympic lifting, for example. So we run a functional conjugate-based platform and model for a vast majority of our athletes. So we work the multimodality-based model, and we don't necessarily max effort anybody with the clean or the snatch. What we do is we work them into energy systems day with maybe 20 to 40% of 1RM bloating, and we work the movement pattern in a more controlled setting. So for Olympic lifting, people say, oh, don't use that with your athletes, or no, no, you have to use that with your athletes, but it comes down to context. You know, another one can be, again, the squat bench and the deadlift. I am a big believer that those barbell traditional lifts they tend to take the most out of the body, not even from a neurological perspective, but from a mechanical stress perspective, more than any other of their, of their derivatives. Mm -hmm. So we really monitor the training volume used with traditional barbell lifting. And in our programs, it's anywhere from 5 to 7% of total training volume over a week or a block's training time is going to be with the traditional barbell lift. And my favorite thing in the world is being able to keep the barbell off of somebody for eight, 12, 16 weeks, and then go into a testing cycle and have them PR. That is the most fulfilling thing in the world to me, but it, it comes back to you get strong in different positions, you intelligently customize those positions and continuously give novel stimuli, then you will be able to display your strength, not only just test it over and over based on just getting better at the barbell itself. Man, I love that. And I actually wrote an article on my website probably a couple months ago now, but about the idea of rotating lifts. And this is mm. something I know you followed Westside and Louie. And I mean, yep. this is something that I was exposed to very early on. And it didn't make as much sense because I was a young strapping 22 year old with like a training age of <laughs> one, you know, yeah. so you can go in, you can squat and deadlift and bench press pretty frequently because you don't have some of this accumulated wear and tear. But especially as somebody ages or as their training age goes up, you start to realize, oh, okay, maybe I do need to rotate the emphasis a little bit more or rotate where I stress and load the body in an effort to not only keep it healthy, but also to increase my performance over time. Well, I think the other thing about the barbell, too, is that we have a predisposition to competing with ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we go in and we have in the back of our mind, like, oh, I'm a 405 squatter. And if I don't squat 405 that day, I'm a piece of shit. So you know what? No matter what, I'm going to get 405 on my back. And if I'm not even capable of doing it, I'm going to get it up somehow, some way. We give away our authentic movement patterns. We give away our fine-tuned techniques. And we give away range of motion. We make all of these changes to something that it's just a friggin' exercise. So I like having the programming mindset of putting varied lifts on people that they have no idea what they're doing. So with the use of accommodating base resistance, with the use of different setups, concentric onlys, box techniques, we literally get athletes into the position where they don't know if they're going to use 200 pounds of bar weight that day or 400 pounds of bar weight that way. Because then they can auto-regulate. We can get them the most training effect in a minimal amount of stress. And mentally, they can just calm the F down so they can get what they need. Nothing more, nothing less. 
That is brilliant. It's actually the reason that when I first started shifting to more like front squatting, and especially in this case, the two kettlebell front squat, I was such a big mm. fan of it because nobody has any context as to how much weight they can two kettlebell front squat. You know, every basketball player, every football player, every soccer player, they know what they can back squat approximately, but nobody knows what you can two kettlebell front squat. So it just comes down to, can I do this? Does it feel like I'm working hard? And am I hitting the target areas that I want to load? Absolutely. Okay, man. So this next one is off the beaten path and I'm just going to be real. This is for selfish reasons. A hundred percent. This question's for me. Okay. So I want to know how on earth you create so much content because I was like scrolling through and I have to do like, you know, recon on everybody before they come on the show. And I'm looking at your Facebook feed and I bet there were like three videos posted just yesterday. Now, I don't know if you're creating three videos a day, but you're pumping out a ton of content. So what is your process for that? And then just like, how do you brainstorm all this stuff? I'm fascinated by it. So in 2013, I was coaching 80 hours a week, just as every other coach has ever done in their entire career, running the morning, the afternoons, the night sessions, Saturdays and Sundays. And I was in between. So I moved from Southern California out to Madison, Wisconsin, where I live currently. And and I was kind of between working in uh, Olympic sport and just like moving to Madison. So I was just sitting around. And me being me, I just read all the time. So I read all the journals, I read all the articles, all the T Nation, everything. And one day my wife was just like, why don't you write something, man? It's like, why are you sitting around reading all this shit? Uh, that's why don't funny. You actually go in and write something. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. But what do I have to say? And over 2,000 published articles later here in 2019, it looks like I did have something to say. And those early years were very, very hard work because – In 2013, 2014, I got involved with T Nation. And between 2014 and 2017, I was predominant writer over at T Nation. So Mm -hmm. I produced 270 articles at that time frame. Oh my gosh. And that's unfathomable for people. And just from a sheer read standpoint, I had more clicks and reads and time on page in 2016 and 2017 than one of my mentors, Christian Thibodeau, working for the same company. So I wrote a metric fuck ton of articles over at (laughs) T-Nation in that time period, but people don't realize that in 2013, 2014, I was producing 20 articles a month. 20 articles a month that were being, not not published on my own site, but on bodybuilding.com, on T-Nation, on muscle and strength, on staff, and all these other different websites. So I got very, very good quickly at content development because I hadn't written anything in my entire career. So starting out in 2005 into 2013, I didn't say anything. So I had a lot built up in me. And I I go back to having a skill that I didn't necessarily thought I had. So I'm pretty good at writing content. I'm pretty good at being coherent with my ideas, having the the staple hooks that I want to talk about. But also just from a development standpoint, I'm pretty quick on writing something that's like a four or 6,000 word article. But things have really changed over the last two years because I moved away from T Nation at the end of 2017, got hooked up with bodybuilding.com. We had an exclusive product over there, doing a lot more work for them, consulting and writing. But then we started driving more and more quality content that I was actually the editor of over at drjohnlesson.com. And we've produced an article, a unique article, not a blog post, but an article over there every week for the last two and a half years. So there is a lot of content streaming through drjohnrussin.com, but your original question, the videos, 
I actually have every single workout that we do because we test, my coaching staff and I, we test every single workout that we give our clients on our own bodies before we give our clients. And you know what? We video every single workout that we ever do. Wow. So this morning, we had seven exercises on video that we were fine-tuning before we gave it out to our clientele. So everything that we do is something that is backed on what I've written about before. And we really just try to link it for people to learn more about the techniques. So we'll have videos streaming um, multiple day on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and we'll link it all back to, hey, hey, you want to know more about this? Here's a 5,000-word article about this technique. And that's something that we do consistently because right now the brand is all about education, paying it forward to other strength and conditioning coaches, other personal trainers that want to level up their education. Wow. I mean, I'll be honest, it's pretty rare that I'm impressed with somebody's productivity or their content creation game, but hats off to you, my guy. You're a machine. That is awesome. Well, at the time, like I, I didn't know what I was capable of doing because, you know, Tibbs and I, we were kind of going head head over at Sea Nation. Mm -hmm. And it was like, Tibbs would publish, I would publish, Tibbs would publish, I would publish. And people don't realize I have two kids at home too. So I was doing a lot of this work while coaching 50 hours a week and doing a vast majority of this writing on Friday nights, on Saturdays at nap time, on Sundays at nap time. Mm -hmm. So I was producing multiple articles a week based on nap times. Wow. <laughs> it, it seems crazy now looking back on it, but that's what got the work done when everyone else was just kind of hanging out on the weekend. I was waiting for those kids to go to sleep at nap time so I could knock out an article or two. That's impressive, man. That's awesome. Okay, so big question time, my friend. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young John Russen one piece of advice about training and or life, what would it be? This is a tough one, but I always say that things happen for a reason. And setbacks aren't necessarily a bad thing. You know, when you look at guys like yourself, Eric Cressy, uh, Brett Contreras, these guys at the top of the industry today, everyone knows them, everyone's learned from them, they've read the articles for 10 years. We, we put people at a, a pedestal and we go, wow, how the hell did they ever get there? It must be amazing. But, you know, throughout my career, I've learned more from my challenges. I've learned more from the times that I didn't know what my next step was going to be. I didn't know how I was going to make my next dollar. I didn't know how I was going to get my next client or my next job than anything that I've had success with. So I had a hard time with that while I was going through it, like, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's something that looking back on it today, I'm like, man, you know, grinding through those hard times, it makes it so much more fulfilling when I can get into a position to help more people today. But at the time, it was very frustrating for me. And my advice to myself would be like, hey, just ride the wave, go with the flow. Because if you're working hard, if you're doing good things and you're helping people, even if it's one person a day, even if it's two people a day, you will eventually get on track in order to get yourself into a position to help more people overall and be more successful. But I'm extremely hard on myself because I always want to strive to give the best for our clients and our athletes. I want to strive to give the best for our coaches. And going through a lot of these challenges earlier on in my career, it was something that I just felt like I was underperforming. But in actuality, the reason that I'm performing at this level today is because of those challenges. That's awesome, man. I love that. All right, my guy. Last but not least, we've got our lightning round. I actually have five questions for you. So we'll go ahead and jump right in. Your answers can be as short or as long as you'd like. All right. <laughs> yep. All right, cool. So I know we have both written for both T Nation and Bodybuilding.com at this point. How did you get started with both of those respective companies? 
So in 2013, again, I gave the story of my wife just getting on my ass and saying, <laughs> hey, go write something. Right. And it's not like it was today. You know, back then, you couldn't just like submit an article. Like, you know that. So yes. you would have to know somebody that knew somebody that had an email address. And it took me about three months to get TC Luomo's email address. Wow. This is a great story. I email him over this article idea. And I actually wrote the article beforehand so we could look at it. And there was a one-sentence response from TC at biotest.com or whatever his mm-hmm. email address was. John, this is good, but nobody gives a shit about this fluffy physical therapy bullshit. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's about right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I emailed back and I'm like, all right, well, what do I got to do to make this fly? He goes, you got to make this stuff sexy. And again, that was great advice at the time, but I was like, what do I know about being sexy? Like, I, I coach athletes. Like, I'm not the sexiest guy in the world, but, right. you know, coming reading your stuff, Eric's stuff, Tony's stuff, uh, TC and Chris at the time, you know, there's a certain confidence that exudes from the writing. And that's something that I found the voice very, very quickly to be authentic to myself. That wasn't academia where I was coming from, but it was more infotainment. And that's really what yes. we try to do today, even from 2013 on. But that was some of the best advice that I had. One article turned into one article per month, one article per week, and 270 articles in three and a half years. Wow. That's that's super impressive, dude. And what about bodybuilding.com? How'd you get started there? That was easier because at the time I was, I was with Teen Nation and they reached out and they, hey, we love what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> let's do some more stuff. And that, <laughs> that, was, that was an easy one. That's awesome. Okay. So along those same lines, here's question number two. Do you have a favorite article that you've written? Is there one that you were just like, Oh, man, I just love that. Or, or one that stands out in your brain. Well, the favorite article that I wrote last year was polarizing title. It said, there is no such thing as injury prevention. And okay. I'm in the business of injury prevention. You know, yes. that's what I do for a living. That's what my brand is all about. But in that article, we talk about not being black or white, hurt or healthy, and actually a way that we utilize quote unquote injury prevention or better said injury risk mitigation and quantify it. So talking about severity, frequency, return back to train. And the most important thing about this article was autonomous return to train. So not being dependent on having somebody else put you back together and having the ability to master your own body, giving it what it needs, because in the grand scheme of things, people are going to flare up. People are going to get hurt. We are human beings but we have to be able to manage our own bodies with non-clinical work when we do have these things occur. You know, that is what we try to develop with our clientele is having autonomy of the way that your body is working, even if it's not working at an optimal level on a day-to-day. So powerful for a client or athlete to feel like they have some ownership in the process versus their reliant, being reliant on you. Yeah, dependency is not a great model. Being be able to be self-sufficient as much as you possibly can. You know, even the professional athletes that we have, they don't have the ability to get Cairo and PT every single day or a massage every single day. We have to have some non-clinical self-care techniques that we can really fall back on because, you know, that's the name of the game in longevity. So number three, talk to me about FPT. What is it and why did you create it? Yeah, Functional Power Training is my new book. We released it in January of 2019 of this year. 
And this is our new training model. This is the training model that we utilize with our athletes, with our strength sport athletes and our field and court sport athletes. And it's actually a training model that looks very, very similar to the type of blueprint that I used with Dave Tate and his management last year, okay. bringing him back from the depths of hell yes. to actually squat 900 again and be able to walk a 5K with his son. So I went above and beyond with this thing because me being me, I'm not being short-winded by any means. <laughs> I wrote 140,000 words. It's literally the Harry Potter of fitness books. It's 16 chapters. Oh my and gosh. I actually have a couple of guest chapters from Dave, from a mutual friend of ours, Joel Jameson. Yeah. Uh, full chapters on every methodology that we run currently. So it's the most up-to-date model. And then we have 12 unique weeks of functional power training, which is my functional conjugate model to bring people through and actually get them stronger, resilient, bigger, more than ever. Dude, that sounds awesome. I'm going to have to check that out myself. It sounds awesome. <laughs> Number four, you travel a lot for speaking. Do you have a favorite place to visit? I, I just came back from two weeks in Sydney, Australia last month. And I do have to say that Sydney was a pretty good place. You know, yeah. getting there was a different story, but That's being over there in Sydney, unbelievable. Yeah, once you get off that 16-hour flight, you know, anywhere would be good, but <laughs> being able to actually immerse myself in the culture a little bit, it was awesome. The tail end of that trip, we actually had Mark Fisher out with me as well. So being able to enjoy some time with a beautiful businessman like Mark was also a plus. <laughs> Best hair in the business. Well, him and Not Jim Ferris. He got a haircut. I know he did get a haircut, but it's he's still yeah. got great hair. We're all jealous. <laughs> We're all jealous. All right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> me too, man. All right. Last but not least, number five. What's next for John Russin? Well, this year is big because again, we have the pain-free performance specialist certification that launched, and we are going to certify. 3,000 coaches worldwide this year, 60 events. We're going four different continents. And this thing is really the thing that I look at in my career. I've worked up to this point in order to share this with the world. And the two-day PPSC course, it's something that is a powerful, simplistic system that can be utilized literally Monday. And it's something that we're bringing to Olympic committees it's going worldwide with Equinox, gym chains, and general fitness, and everywhere in between. But it's something that I'm so proud to be able to stand up in front of people and give this. But not only have that, but have a team of world-class presenters, teachers, and coaches be able to teach my methodology all across the globe. It's, it's one of the more humbling things in the world to not only think that, hey, I have the opportunity to go out and give this education myself, but have people that you I look up to be able to teach my education to more and more people worldwide. It's just unbelievable. And that is going to keep us busy. That's for sure. No, no doubt about it, man. Well, John, you've been amazing. I know you have a ton going on, so I appreciate your time. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great things you have going on? DrJohnRussin.com, D-R-J-O-H-N-R-U-S-I-N.com. Everything's over there, brand new content each week and any of the programs that we talked about on here. And then social media is easy. It's just Dr. John Russin, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, highly active as you alluded to <laughs> over on all three of those accounts. Awesome. I'll make sure I get all that in the show notes so people can connect with you and find out all the great things that you have your hands in right now. But John, man, I really, really appreciate your time. Like I said, I know you're busy. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much, Mike. It was really great. All 
All right, guys, that does it for this week's show with Dr. John Russin. Sincerely hope you enjoyed it. I know he's one of those guys that I always take something away from chatting with, and I hope you can say the same. Now, with that being said, I would appreciate any support you can give for the show. Like I mentioned up top, downloads are up, traffic is up, the show is on the rise, and I would love it if you could just share the show with any friend, colleague, you know, sister, brother, cousin, doesn't matter to me. If somebody could benefit from hearing this show and hearing Dr. John Russin's message, I would love for you to share it with them. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.